Welcome to the Asia Society Hong Kong Movers and Shakers podcast. Through the short interactive fireside chat, we get to meet with the leaders and game changers in different industries for insights into their personal journey to success, what they learned, how they failed, and other interesting wisdom they may want to share. Today's podcast is with Professor Ezra Vogel, the Henry Ford Professor of Social Sciences at Harvard University. Professor Vogel has had a long association with Harvard, receiving his PhD in sociology in 1958 and then teaching at the university from 1967 to 2000. In 1973, Professor Vogel became the second director of the East Asian Research Center and served as director of the U.S.-Japan program, director of the Fairbank Center, and founding director of the Asia Center. From 1993 to 1995, Professor Vogel took a two-year leave of absence from Harvard to serve as National Intelligence Officer for East Asia in Washington, D.C. His book, Japan as Number One in Japanese Translation, became a bestseller in Japan, and his book on Deng Xiaoping and Transformation of China in Chinese Translation is a bestseller in China. Professor Vogel met with me at Asia Society Hong Kong to conduct the following interview. One of the first questions that I, I, I did want to ask you is um, just based on your experience in Japan. Emperor Naruhito and the Empress Masako um, of Japan, they were just ascended to the throne earlier this year. Uh, you've known the royal family, and specifically the empress, especially during her years as a young student at Harvard. Um, you've spoken highly of her uh, skills as a diplomatic representative of the country, but during your time observing her specifically as a young student, what traits did you see in her back then that made you confident that she would be on the right track to fulfill her potential at performing in her new role as the empress of Japan? When I met her, she was the daughter of a famous diplomat from Japan, and she was a high school student at Belmont High School. And I met her and her family because I had known the father and I was invited to their house for supper. And she was helping her mother. And what I saw there was just a conscientious, thoughtful, nice daughter, not too radical, not too wild, uh, who listened and wanted to find out what was going on. When she was a college student at Harvard, I was the head of the U.S.-Japan program, and she came to several of our meetings. And I think she got from her father, who was an excellent leading diplomat, uh, a sense of responsibility for her country. And she was there at a time when a lot of people were complaining about uh, Japanese non-tariff barriers. And she was very concerned with trying to understand uh, what their complaints were about and tried very earnestly to answer uh, what was in Japan's point of view. She was a very serious, thoughtful young woman, good student, worked hard. English by then was native because she went to American high school. And she had a kind of sense of responsibility as the Japanese trying to explain things to America. <laughs> Nobody thought she would end up uh, being the Empress of Japan and I doubt whether she ever thought of that at the time. Uh, it was only many years later that that opportunity came up. So she was a good listener, understood sort of her sense of responsibility. And, and, and kept learning, and kept, kept learning. learning, right. So she had a mind for learning constantly. Yes, right. Now, I'd like to stick on sort of the track of global leaders. Um, right. In your book uh, on Deng Xiaoping, uh, the years 1969 to 1973, uh, yes. Deng was exiled to Jiangxi yes. uh, by Chairman Mao, and you called it Deng's time to ponder. Right. Um, and you, uh, you said this time in nature was an important experience that shaped sort of the greatness of his life and what he achieved. What was significant about that and other similarities that you saw with other historic global leaders? I didn't study leadership in general. Mm-hmm. 
But there was a professor at the Kennedy School that I talked to about. He was uh, uh, David Gergen, who worked with a lot of American presidents and thought a lot about leadership and taught courses on leadership. So when I talked to him about Deng Xiaoping, one of the things he picked up very quickly was that he spent time in wilderness, he thought that was his term, mm -hmm. that he had held high positions, so had a good sense of the problems of the country, and then had several years when he was out of office to think about what needed to be changed about the system. Sometimes when people are so involved in their current office, they lack the perspective, and they are so concerned with the daily changes and the daily problems or the bill that they want to get through uh, Parliament or whatever it is, that they cannot sit back and think what was possible. But they have a good basis for thinking about things because they've already held high position and they understand the political forces, they understand the people, they understand the potentialities, what could be done. And on that basis uh, to think, I talked to Dung's daughter who was with him a good part of those years and she said her father would walk around the garden pacing every morning uh, for about a half an hour and I think he took a walk in the afternoon as well. But he, she could tell he was just thinking. Uh, the high level leadership in China at the time was uh, such that you, you didn't tell everybody what you're thinking and he didn't tell his daughter what he was thinking. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he was thinking that Mao Zedong made some terrible mistakes. So it was a good thing he didn't talk about those. Right. But by being by yourself and having that kind of environment, you can really think about everything. And then when he came back, uh, he had a sense of what China needed to do at that point. Uh, <clears throat> it's interesting, the position he was given when he came back was to be in charge of education. Hmm. And um, he also, took a couple of important visits just before he came to power. He came to power, you could say, in December 78. And a few months before he went to Singapore, a few months after that he went to Japan. But the previous year he was already put in charge of developing things in higher education. And he was already beginning to think at that time of how you prepare people for leadership positions and what role education can play in training a group of people uh, who could make contributions to the country. So he spent over a year in that position and he was undoubtedly thinking about what the country needed and what role education can play. He didn't have the highest position at that time. It was just, but I think in preparation for the job he had beginning December 78, where he was de facto head of, the, of uh, the country and thinking about its future. It was a, a very good way because he had to think about what the content of that knowledge would be, what role they might play, how to motivate them, and then what the country needed as a whole. So it was a very uh, good preparation. And you think a lot of this was implemented into the current structure of developing leaders in China? Let me get into the details. At the beginning of the Cultural Revolution in 1966, uh, universities basically closed down. Right. And he took over in 1977. And the universities had really played very, almost nowhere else anyway. It's difficult to imagine in a modern country that for a whole decade, the whole university training system was basically dead. Yeah. 
And his question on returning was how to get the thing started again. Uh, what kind of topics to have as education, uh, what the curriculum should be, how they would train the students. And so uh, he brought together, <clears throat> when he came back in uh, summer 77, he brought together educators, experienced people whom he felt he could respect to hear their views about what role education can play in modernization process and uh, how to get a good educational system uh, that would provide them with learning, keep their minds open, and uh, therefore he played a very constructive role in getting them ready and getting the educational system ready for moving ahead in modernizing the country. If we could jump back to the pr uh, present moment, what is something that keeps you up at night? What is your greatest fear right now? Well, the United States and China are going to be on a path that could lead to conflict. Right. That um, the two countries now are doing so many things that could be so disastrous. You people in Hong Kong now have to worry about what's going on in the streets of Hong Kong. Um, if uh, China and the United States keep going on the path of uh, complaining about each other, yelling about each other, we could have war, we could have nuclear war, we'd have devastating conflicts. And even if it doesn't get that bad, that uh, the international cooperation for climate change, uh, for preventing incidents at sea, uh, for sustainable development, for international rules about trade, all those things will be impossible if we don't get a better way to working with China. <clears throat> Somehow, teaching at Harvard University, I developed a kind of sense of responsibility for the world as if the students that I taught would really take on important positions. Mm -hmm. So what would they need to know? What would they need to do? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very heavy responsibility. In a way, it's overly ambitious. In a way, it's overly uh, megalomaniac, you can even <laughs> say, because I don't have that power. But I think I always want to act as if that were the possible. I worked two years in the government. Right. And I was a national intelligence officer. And I had to write very short reports. Mm. And in fact, most of those reports I found, nobody paid any attention to. Mm. But every time I wrote one, I thought, if these guys pick up my report and take it seriously, what would they need to know? And uh, what uh, kind of things could I advise them to do that would give them an understanding of the situation and help them get at the real most important problems. Right. That kind of intellectual discipline, I think it's very useful for a teacher to have. Mm -hmm. And in a way, uh, that weighed down more heavily on me when I returned to the university to teach because uh, it wasn't just a kind of, oh, this is interesting, I'll talk about this in my lecture tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It was a, a more disciplined sense of responsibility. You know the chances are uh, it's not gonna be that influential, but if it were, what would you want to say and what would you want to do that would really be good advice and uh, provide them a good perspective for the issues that they faced? Didn't, I mean, that's good advice in itself, uh, but mm -hmm. it, it sort of related to that. You helped create that letter signed by the 100 prominent academics, diplomats, business people, right. the China's not the enemy. Right. And you sent it to the current U.S. administration. Yes. Um, so it's similar to that. 
Well, yes, we, that was within a certain context. We, the, when you do something that's going to be acted on now, you have to think, what's the effect now? The, right. In some ways, a teaching uh, at a university, you're thinking in a broader perspective, say over the next few years, or what is the general approach. But when you're writing a letter for a newspaper and you're concerned about the current mood, then the question is, what do you want to do about that current mood? And uh, there, was an there was an article in Foreign Affairs that had appeared. And the article, in a sense, in, the, in essence, said that uh, the effort to work with China constructively, engage with China in the hopes that they would become a more open and democratic society had failed, and that uh, we should now be much tougher in dealing with China. And the whole tone of that was very nasty. Right. And if I were a Chinese, I would say, hell with those guys, I'm not going to work with them. <laughs> and I didn't uh, think that there had really a consensus about that. That article said that was the new Washington consensus. A lot mm -hmm. of people were writing about the new Washington consensus that said that we should be very tough with China. Right. I, as a patriotic American, I think we have to defend our interests. Mm -hmm. We don't want them invading other countries. Uh, we don't want them stealing our intellectual property. Yeah. And those issues I want to defend. Okay. But there are so many issues like international environment, international mm -hmm. regulation, uh, where we have common interests. We've got to be much more constructive in working with them. So a number of us who, who looked at that uh, article and the mood that was developing in Washington felt that that, that didn't re really represent a consensus that a lot of us who worked on China felt it was more complicated and if you begin to treat them like an enemy, then the Chinese would respond as an enemy. And so we began talking and quite a few of us uh, were carrying on these discussions and emails back and forth. And finally, you know, five of us decided to coalesce and write an article for the, <clears throat> we decided to put it in the form of an open letter to President. Mm -hmm. uh, Trump, but we sent to the Washington Post, which is widely read in Washington. Right. Uh, two of the people were former diplomats. Uh, Stapleton Roy had been ambassador. Mm -hmm. Susan Thornton had been, in fact, uh, the person in charge of Asia policy, East Asia policy in the State Department. Uh, two of the guys were academics. Uh, one of them was a guy at MIT, Taylor Frabble, who'd worked on security issues and then I, who was International Relations, Modern Politics, Society, uh, and Mike Swain, who was a think tank, Carnegie at Washington. And our views were similar, and so we crafted this letter. And then we wanted to make sure that uh, it had a wider group of supporters. We didn't want any, just anybody to sign. Right. So we tried to contact very thoughtful people mm -hmm. that we thought might agree with us uh, to sign the letter, and people who already had had some important responsibilities. Uh, one of them was Vice President Mondale, oh. who had been ambassador to right. Japan. One of them was my colleague Joseph Nye, who is known as a very important leader in thinking about issues in foreign policy, and uh, many others. But uh, we got almost 100 people to sign. So I think the result of our letter was to make it very clear. It was just not a simple consensus to be tough on China. 
There were different voices in America and some very important voices that wanted to work more closely with China in a constructive way. We wanted to defend their national interests, yes, but we also have to work with them. Yeah. You know, in Boston, there are a lot of Red Sox fans. Right. Um, and we want them to win over the Yankees. <laughs> but there is a structure to the relationship right. that's constructive. Mm. The relationship between the Red Sox and the Yankees forces the Red Sox to try to play better, to have better training, to do a better job. Right. Your job is not to crush the Yankees. Your job is to uh, play on the playing field, play well, and get a higher uh, number of runs than they do. Right. And I think our view toward China is something like that. Okay. We, our group felt that it's bounded. You don't, if you get a wild relationship where yelling insults each other, we could be in conflict in very short order. Yeah. We need a, a global structure that allows that competition to continue, but allows ways to handle it and structure the rivalry. Uh, so it's managing the rivalry. It's not sort right. of inducing uh, hatred and nastiness. That's wonderful. Um, I, uh, sort of on that track uh, of nationalism, and it's sort of polarizing nature that we're seeing a lot. Uh, we observe in most countries uh, the demonizing of foreign enemies to unite your domestic base is a popular strategy historically. Uh, presently with President Trump, as we're saying in the U.S., uh, China with its anti-Japanese or anti-American sentiment, uh, and you saying Mao crediting the Japanese with the invasion, uh, saving sort of the Communist Party and uniting its people. Um, that being said, are there alternative sort of similarly effective strategies that future and current leaders could use to unite the country despite, uh, besides demonizing international rivals? Well, uh, competition, of course, is a good one. And goals of, say, winning the Olympics, you know, is an interesting goal. Okay. Because you try to get your team to play better, you study the best practices, and you try to improve yourself in a way to do that. Um, in the same way that you prove, you want to get your education you know, institutions up to higher rankings in the international field. Right. You want to raise the, the average income level. I think, I, in my view, it should not, the goal should not be the overall GNP, it should be what are the differences between the highest and the lowest, uh, what some people call the Gini coefficient. The, you don't want the inequalities to get too large. You want to have you know a fairly prosperous country, uh, but you don't want uh, to have uh, inequalities. To just say we want to have uh, higher uh, economic growth uh, runs the danger that a lot of people will suffer. And to me, the, the the goal that really should work in the long run is bring everybody up. Mm. And it's both a moral and humane uh, way to approach it, and it's also necessary. Otherwise, you're going to have internal turmoil, and you're, you're going to be in real trouble. So I think the creative way for a person to think is, how do we make our country economically stronger, but how do we structure it in such a way that the inequalities don't get too big? Is this related to Japan as number one? In a way, uh, in uh, the 1970s, uh, I wrote a book called Japan is Number One. And um, <clears throat> from 1960 to 75, 
I visited Japan almost none, every year, but I haven't spent a long time. Mm -hmm. 75, 76, I was there a whole year. And I said, wow, this country has come up much faster right. than people realize. And I knew America was going to look at Japan and say, these guys are going to be a threat to us. Mm -hmm. So what I thought was that if I could describe some things that Japan does well, that we could study and think about, that would both help us improve and help us from demonizing the Japanese. A lot of people misunderstood that book, and I think it sold for the wrong reason. Right. Uh, a lot of people felt that the Japanese economy was passing ours, and what I meant was, wow, Japan just passed us, yeah. watch out. That's not what I meant, mm -hmm. and that's not what I said. Yeah. What I said was, there are a lot of things Japan does better than we do. Right. Uh, the way they treat their old people. Longevity was, on the average, longer than the United States. They have an average level of education at the basic education level that has higher standards and where there, where there are fewer kids left behind uh, and that educational system works very well. The companies don't have that great inequality. Uh, the the uh, <clears throat> uh, highest wages and the lower wa lowest wages are not as different as they are in the American company. And they have a good uh, public administration of very high quality. Uh, and there are a lot of things that Japan does quite well. And it would be good for our country if uh, instead of focusing on banging them and yelling, yelling at them for taking some of our uh, trade <laughs> and uh, crushing our auto industry, it would say, okay, well, they've done things well. Let's be a better competitor. Yeah. Um, Maybe it was a little optimistic or naive for an academic. Uh, <laughs> the surprising thing was the book sold better in Japan than in the United States. Uh, I had written it for Americans. Uh, one of the Japanese newspapers, I had a plot that was to encourage Japan uh, to get, feel so confident that they stop working hard. <laughs> and uh, of course that was not my goal. My goal was to try to get Americans to think about what they could do better and prove their own way their own, one, one place I think it could, did perhaps have a help spur. The Japanese were so good in their companies at uh, management of uh, high, high quality goods. And uh, I think a lot of American firms, you know, began to set notice and mm -hmm. there were a lot of efforts of American companies uh, to introduce uh, quality management and, and quality control. And I had lots of invitations to go around to speak to companies to talk about uh, quality control. So I think uh, there were some you know, efforts of American companies to make good use of that competition where I felt I might have a role. It wasn't nearly as large as I had hoped in my most megalomaniac moments, <laughs> but it was, I think it was a constructive role I felt lucky to have been able to play that role. I think it's uh, it's influential what you've done, and it's required reading, I feel, for... A lot uh, of people in businesses, yeah. a, lot, a lot of company managers at the time in the United States uh, made their workers read that, yeah. uh, because they wanted them to, to work hard and say, these guys, these competitors are coming up, you better learn about them and work harder. 
smart thing to read your books. Yes. Um, aside from the required reading, obviously our audience, they have to read all your books. Are there any other? No, I hope they don't try to read all of them. They, <laughs> they wouldn't get anything else done. Well, yeah. they'll, uh, they'll, they'll use it for reference, if anything. Okay. <laughs> Are there any other books that you would recommend people must read? Uh, if their interest is in playing an important role in their own country, mm -hmm. one that might be useful is uh, Four Little Dragons. Mm. Uh, because I describe in that book how Taiwan, uh, South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore uh, try to catch up with the most advanced countries. And it's a kind of a simple introduction. Some of the books I've done uh, in detail uh, may not be all that interesting. I, may, I wrote one book on politics of Guangdong. I wrote one book on family in Japan that may now not be so much general interest. But I think the general idea of catching up, I think those four little dragons and what they did in trying to catch up might be good. If they have a lot of time, I think reading the book I did on Deng Xiaoping could be interesting. Yeah. Because uh, I started, when I retired, to work on this book on Deng. I spent 10 years doing that. And when I got done with all that study, I thought, wow, this guy was even more influential than I realized. Right. And I ended up thinking in the 20th century, what leader did more to change the course of history of the 20th century than none? I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Russia, you had Lenin and Stalin, but the country, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, communism fell apart 70 years later. Yeah. You had uh, FDR who brought us through World War Two, but then how much did that shape the United States 50 years later? Yeah. Uh, maybe not. And same way with Churchill. But here was this guy, Deng Xiaoping, who in 1978, right after the Cultural Revolution, that country was absolutely disastrous. Right. It had, uh, lots of people had died. Mm -hmm. They had a Cultural Revolution, and they had a famine, the Great Leap Forward. Some people estimated 40 million people died during yeah. that. So at the end of that, China is extremely poor, one of the poorest nations in the world. The time, yeah. And they had a policy, Mao Zedong policy, that was wrecking the country. Mm -hmm. And to turn the course of that policy around, to figure out a way so that you could set a different policy without splitting the country, and to manage that transition, and introduce uh, ideas from abroad and study so that your country could grow, with a population of over one billion people, you could grow faster than any other country. It's almost unbelievable yeah. uh, that it's a country in such a mess. And he turned it around and for, from 1978 until about 92, 14 years. He was really the day leader in the country. And to turn it around and start it on that path, they kept it on growing yeah. at fantastic speed. He was a phenomenal leader, and I'm not sure that <clears throat> all the things he did uh, have applicability to other countries. But I think if you think about the problems he faced, how you can change policy and not split the country. You mm. know, the country is all going right. one way. You want to turn a different direction. How do you do that without split? How do you go from socialism to open markets right without people saying, well, you've abandoned all the things that our country stood for. Yeah. How do you turn that around? I think if you think the analogs 
of all the things that he accomplished and what that might do in your own country. That could, that's really quite a, uh, quite a remarkable guy. I, I, and my friends in China uh, say that there's no book in any language that tells the story better than I told it. Yeah. And uh, in China, <clears throat> sold over a million copies, mm -hmm. and there are a lot of uh, uh, people who read it off online right, or exactly. uh, so forth. Yeah. And uh, most people in China of senior generation either read the book or know about the book or read parts of the book. Yeah. So I feel very lucky uh, that I had the uh, good luck to pick the right guy, and then that judgment was correct. And they had such good cooperation from so many people to learn to be able to tell that story and to write about it more objectively than anybody in China would be allowed to do. Exactly. So um, I feel very lucky to have done that. Yeah. Thank you for writing the book. I actually have a copy with <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll sign it for you. I appreciate that. Um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but uh, so this is the final question. Um, a lot of sort of the younger audience uh, may have a bearish outlook on the current state of international affairs, uh, but from your decades of global experience, you know you've witnessed countless historical regimes, world events, charismatic leaders. Are things better off or worse than in the past, and and not just uh, the past history, but since uh, six hundred uh, Japan, uh, for example? Um, what final advice would you give to uh, the younger, say, twenty-year-old Ezra if you were back in university today? I think, first of all, uh, that in terms of living standards, things are much better today than they were as a whole in the world. If you think number number of people who live in a bare subsistence economy who have doubts as to whether they're going to have enough food to eat next week, the proportion of the world's population that's able to find enough to eat has certainly gone way up. But the world is at a very difficult turning point now. Yeah. and. So many things are happening at such a rapid pace that we haven't devised systems for dealing with that kind of rapid change. Mm -hmm. And local communities that used to be able to handle things now are so upended by changes over which they have no control. And how to respond to that. There are so many new challenges and there's no simple easy answer now because the world keeps changes. So my advice to an 18-year-old would, first of all, uh, get to know other people besides the people you grew up with, different culture, uh, and get to know them as friends and get to know them deeply. Uh, I think a three-month trip isn't enough. Right. Uh, I, if you have the opportunity to learn a foreign language and then stay uh, for maybe a year or so in that country, uh, and where you form deep friends uh, friendships that could last a long time. And I, I've had the good luck to be able to continue to see those friends in Japan and China uh, over decades. And uh, it's fun to have friendships. You like it, you enjoy each other. But also, when you meet a friend, you can learn things more deeply than if you meet a stranger. Mm -hmm. You know where he's coming from or she is coming from. Right. You know what they stand for and to form deep relationships you get to a deeper level. So I would say, get that kind of perspective. Uh, second thing I would say is don't give up. Uh, not everything works. I was one time trying to get a job at one place and I bombed. Uh, fortunately, I didn't give up, I kept working. 
and I knew the lim my limitations. I, I, I realized I needed a lot of work. I, I maybe worked too hard. I think it was tough on my family uh, that I it was such a grind. But I, I, I wish I had been not quite so much a grind. But I think to continue to work is a good thing. And to continue to learn and to keep yourself open for new ideas and try to think of the big picture. What's happening in the society you grew up in? What's, what are the changes around the world that's going to affect that? What are the big things that need to be done? And how can I help with that? And how can I have the humane uh, role to be able to help people and to make life better for a lot of other people? In the long run, I think that gives a lot more satisfaction than just being rich and having a fancy big house and traveling around uh, in a fancy uh, vehicle uh, and seeing the whole world. So that would be my advice. Ezra, um, I think this is a perfect time to sign off. I just want to <laughs> yeah. thank you. Uh, you are definitely a treasure to not only the U.S. and but the world. And oh, thank you. I hope to continue this friendship uh, upon your return here. Oh, thank you. Asia. Thank you. All right.